Hi, this is Ashley Jacobs, and my husband Michael and I have been a part of City Church for the past 11 years. We have four kids, and we are a part of the Edgefield Neighborhood Group in our church. I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, City Church. Um, glad to be able to... Uh, be with you virtually um, this way. We're going to look at uh, Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30 today. And uh, part of your sermon series you've been going through. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would help us be attentive to your word. You would show us Jesus. You'd make him precious and real to us. Uh, that you would give us hearts of flesh and take away our hearts of stone. Bless City Church and all the people who hear this, including the one who preaches. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Greek um, can be translated, uh, this verse 27 can be translated, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, so that line, let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ, um, is really about citizenship. Um, and it's, it's almost identical to the phrase that Paul later uses in Philippians 3, verse 20. This is what one of the, uh, one of the commentators said. I think this is from the ESV study Bible. That Philippi prided itself on being a Roman colony offering the honor and privilege of Roman citizenship. And here Paul is reminding the congregation, the Philippians, that they should look to Christ, not Caesar, for their model of behavior. Since their primary allegiance, primary allegiance is to God and to his kingdom. And so here's what he's saying. You're citizens of Rome, citizens of Philippi, but there's a deeper, eternal citizenship that you have in the gospel of Jesus. You are to live as citizens worthy of that gospel. You are gospel people in Nashville, people who are citizens of the kingdom of God in the world. And it makes me think of a, a famous quote from C.S. Lewis uh, in Mere Christianity where he says, this, this idea of citizenship in two places. If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world are just the ones that thought the most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. 
if you aim at heaven, you'll get the earth thrown in. If you only aim at earth, you'll get neither. And so the title of this sermon is Living in Two Worlds. I think that's what Paul's saying. We're living in two worlds. We're living in this world, and we're also living in the next world right now. That's the strange thing about being a Christian, living in two worlds. And so we're going to look at three things today. What does it mean to live in two worlds at once? What does that mean? How does it look? What does it actually look like? How does it look to live in two worlds? And then, so what? Um, what What does it mean to live in two worlds? How does it look? Um, And so what? What does it mean to live in two worlds at once? Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only. This, This word only is actually really important. So when we talk about what it means to live in two worlds at once, Paul is saying here, it's the only thing that matters. It literally, this is the one and only thing. Nothing else must um, distract you uh, from this one great objective. Or as one scholar said, this is an all-embracing occupation, whether Paul was there or not. That is to live as citizens of heaven on earth to live as people worthy of the gospel of Christ is the only thing he wants them to focus on. Now, he'll some other things he'll tell them, but it's the only thing he wants them to focus on. There is this sweet simplicity with the word only, isn't there? It's so clarifying. Just to someone say, I just want you to do this. This is all you're supposed to be doing. This is your only aim. It's not complicated at all. And even being quarantined right now um, has given us a forced simplicity to really focus on things. There are certain things that are simply not an option anymore. And I think as we're going to, like, y'all, this is what Paul is saying. This is the essence of what it means to live in the world now. To live as people worthy of the gospel of Christ. To live as though the gospel is true. This is it. To live like the gospel is actually true. Now, what does it mean to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ? To live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. It means to read your life through the lens of the gospel. To interpret your story in context of the great story, in all caps. The story of the life, death, and resurrection of the man Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Messiah. I was thinking this idea of, of lenses and just how important they are. My family and I, we've been watching lots of TV lately, and one we watched, this is a documentary on elephants. I think it was a Disney one. And it's pretty remarkable. But there was one scene where the elephants are traveling at night, and there were lions and hyenas, you know, through the African, you know, countryside, wherever they were. And this camera was so sophisticated that it was able to show us things that were actually in complete pitch black darkness, 
but we could see them as though it was the middle of the day. They, it was, they were very clear and crisp pictures. The naked eye couldn't see them, but the lens could. And this is kind of like what Paul's saying. Look at your life, your world, your vocation, your relationships, sex, money, power, everything. He's saying, look at your citizenship, even as being a citizen of Rome, being a, being a Roman citizen, being a Philippian, right? Through the lens of the gospel, because that's, he's saying, that's the right way to see everything. Through the lens of the gospel, you can't see it correctly if you don't see it through the lens of the gospel. And, and this lens is a total, it totally transforms the way you see reality. It's a sea change, which just means a complete, utter transformation of the way you see things. It's kind of what, what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. Like, you have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. But when you see the kingdom of God, which is this free gift of being able to see the kingdom, you're not doing anything. You actually see things rightly. You see everything differently, gradually. Everything differently. And so, to live as worthy, to people worthy of the gospel, to live as citizens of two worlds, means to see things through, to see this world and the next world through the lens of the gospel. Well, what, do, what do we mean when we say the lens of the gospel? That sounds good, right? Um, when we say gospel, lens of the gospel, that sounds really spiritual. It, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Which means it's not something to do, it's something that has been done. It's after the fact. Jesus has died and risen, and that's what you see. You have to read life through that reality. Advice is wash your hands. Good news is we have a vaccine. Do you see the difference? And resurrection is the event. When we think about, we're going to sum up the gospel we have to see the resurrection, the way that early Christians saw it, is the resurrection is the single event that changes everything. It's the switch that changed reality. And it, I'm really obsessed with this quote right now from Frederick Buechner. Um, and here's what he says. He's, he's talking about Easter. He's talking about resurrection. And I heard it from uh, this, uh, I heard it this weekend from, Katie, from Kate Bowler. Who's a t- who teaches at Duke. Um, listen to what Buechner said. The worst thing, because of the resurrection, the worst isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next to last thing. The last thing is the best. It's the power from on high that comes down into the world, that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last, best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints. Sometimes our hearts even. Yes, you are terribly loved and forgiven. Yes, you are healed. All is well. When we talk about the gospel, it means that the worst thing isn't the last thing. It's the next to last thing. The last thing is the best thing, which means this. The gospel means your sin isn't the last thing. Forgiveness is. The gospel means shame isn't the last thing. Being seen and accepted is. Death isn't the last thing. Eternal life is. Crying isn't the last thing. Laughter is. COVID isn't the last thing. Healing is. So all the hard, sad, troubling stuff, because we're really struggling. Paul is saying, we're really having a hard time. He's having a hard time. Prison's bad. 
people preaching the gospel out of impure motives uh, to make him look bad, out of spite. But Paul looks at all of this through the lens of of the gospel. Prison is the worst, but it's not the last thing. Enemies are the worst, but it's not the last thing. Do you see? That's what it means. It's a way of seeing everything. And so we're rooted in this gospel. So we see it through a lens. So we're seeing reality. We're, we're, we're filtering everything we see through the lens of the resurrection. And our hearts are rooted in a new place. Henry Nouwen puts it this way. The more roots you have in the new place, the more capable you are of mourning the loss of the old place and letting go of the pain that lies there. This is from his book, The Inner Voice of Love. The more roots you have in the new place, that is the place of God's love and resurrection, you have roots in the new place and you're in the old place, right? The more roots you have in the new place, the more capable you are of mourning the loss of the old place and letting go of the pain that lies there. The Holy Spirit roots us more and more in eternal love, so we are living living and suffering, even physically dying, but our hearts are forever rooted in Jesus. The old place is passing away, but the new place is eternal. The new place is light and joy and beauty and reunion. The new place is like the last day of school. Living in two worlds, the old place and the new place. That's what it means. This permeates the world of the New Testament. This is what Jesus was saying. It's why Jesus was so puzzling to people was because it was like he was living in two worlds, this world and the next world. And so the question is that Christians have struggled over the years, is this, is this new world, is the kingdom of God past? Is it present? Is it future? And the answer is yes. Yeah, I'm just sorry. It's yes. Past, present, and future. It it. It's absolutely something that occurred in the past. It is absolutely something that will come to complete consummation in its ultimate fruition in the future. But it is every bit present too. Waiting for full, waiting for final fulfillment. But it is still present. It's all of these things. Paul is experiencing this so much when he when he says in the passages that we looked that you looked at last week. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. How do you say that? You're living in two worlds. Okay, so how does it look? What does it look like to live in two worlds? We know what it is. What does it look like? There's something so mysterious about living in these two worlds. It actually makes you more real, more present in this world. That's the Lewis quote. That's what the Lewis quote means. The people who thought the most of the next world were precisely the ones who did the most in this who thought rightly about it, not as an escape valve, but as a way of rooting your boot heels in the muck of this earth because of the hope that we have. It actually, it actually makes you more solid. It doesn't make you like a cloud. It doesn't make you like this, this apparition. I recently had a friend say to me that if he trusted, if he really trusted the resurrection more, like at a, at a deep level, not just conceptually, he said, He thinks he would breathe deeper and eat slower. He would listen to the birds more than he would listen to his own anxiety and his shame. They would change the pace of his being in space and time. So Paul says, 
Paul in Philippians 1, 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're standing strong, firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving by side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightening anything by your opponents is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Well, what does it look like? First, unity. So what does it look like to have your boot heels firmly in the muck of the world with your heart uh, living with this pulsating hope? Unity, standing firm in one spirit and one mind. Since the gospel means that the worst thing is the second to last thing, but the best thing is the last thing, we're rooted in a new place together. We are united to Christ as individuals in a family. So when Jesus tells Mary Magdalene after resurrection in John chapter 20, go and tell my brothers that I'm sending to I'm ascending to my father and your father. It's a summary of what this of, of, of the church. Jesus came to bring us home to the Father so that we might, as individuals, be united in the family of God. That's the whole purpose of everything. Everything is about relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit united to us back home. He's saying um, that because He's united, we are united. And it's not a fake unity, it's an eternal unity. And it made me think about these aspen trees. Uh, You see them in Colorado, places out west in the mountains. Um, And I, I looked this up. This is actually from the National Forest foundation. One aspen tree is actually only a small part of a larger organism. Um, A group of aspen trees is considered a singular organism with a main life force underground in the extensive root system. So here's what that means. When you see a cluster of, of aspen trees on the side of a mountain in Colorado, they're, they're all connected by the same root system. They're all united together in the same root system. That is in a way, that's, that's what he's saying. We're united because that's our identity. Jesus, that's what Jesus came to do. It's just a fact that Christians are in union with each other. That's not advice, that's just reality. But we're also very different than aspen trees because in a single stand or, or group of aspen trees, each tree is a genetic replica of the other tree. And so they're called clones, of, clone of aspens, uh, describes a group of aspens. That's not true of us. So we're not clones. We're a body. So there's diversity and unity. We're individuals with our own identities, but we're connected to other people with their own identities. We are unified in our diversity. That's what a body is. We are very diverse individuals, but united at heart and mind. One heart, one mind. So that's what Paul's saying. That's what I hope you. I hope I find with you, because that's truly who you are. We talk a lot about this in the church that we need to be unified, and we're painfully aware, or at least I am, of how short we fall, how much division, how much hurt it has been in the local church uh, and just throughout history. But what Paul's talking about here is not an affinity group or just liking people is he's not talking about being friends which is especially sweet when that does occur in a local church Paul isn't telling them to be better friends he's saying be who you are you are each united to Jesus you have Jesus in common that's actually the word fellowship or koinonia 
is the word in common, right? You have the same root system, rich, poor, male, female, educated, uneducated, strong, weak, Jew, Greek. It's a miracle tree. You're a miracle tree. This is who you are, striving for the faith of the gospel that creates this mysterious unity, even in the face of opposition. And here's what Paul's saying. This is proof of your salvation. Your unity is proof of salvation because it is a miracle that human beings would be unified, ever, really, with true unity and diversity. He said, this is a proof of your salvation and of their destruction because they are anti-love. Your supernatural unity, City Church, supernatural unity that, that we have to pray for exposes the divisiveness of the world. It's not an us versus them, but a them versus Jesus and all those united, by Je- united to Jesus by faith. Which means if we're going to have unity, we're not just to look at one another first for unity. It's really important. Because that'll bum you out. Because then it, then, you ha- then it has to be about affinity groups. Then it has to be about who you like and who's in and who's out. If you look at each other first, it'll cause discouragement. You're to look down to Jesus. Down. What that means is down at the manger. Down at the cross. Down at the grave. God has come and gone below us. He's down there. We find our unity down in the roots, down in the cold, dark earth in Jesus Christ. That's where all the life is. That's where we are unified with our roots. We are to look down and then look out. The only way that you can have love for your brother and sister, real lasting love for your brother and sister in Christ, is that you have to see that brother and sister in Christ loved by Jesus first before you love them. That's what he means. Now that is a sign to all of our opponents, to everyone, to all the forces of darkness and Satan himself. God creates this unity and this life. This is what he's come to do. And he'll bring this to complete uh, fulfillment. So what? We'll close with this. So here we are. So we we see what it means to live out this gospel, this lens, this root system, to live in these two worlds, this paradox we're living in, to live seeing that, that life and love is the last thing that death and sin and guilt and shame are the, sec- and the next to last thing. We see how it's lived out in unity. We see how it's, it's unity is a fact rather than a command. So what do we do with that? Well, here we are. We're suffering and there's disappointment and we're messed up. What do we do now? Listen to what he says in verse 29. It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Just the reality of suffering. Accepting it. Just accepting the reality of suffering. Tim Keller once said that we suffer more because we, we don't expect to suffer at all. And so we're shocked by suffering. But it's a family trait. Everyone united to Jesus will experience to some degree the same suffering that Jesus experienced because we're united to Jesus. He talks about, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 1. Just as the sufferings of Christ, we experience the suffering, but we also experience the comfort through Christ. We're united to Jesus, which means we suffer too, 
sometimes with, and oftentimes with question marks in our eyes. That's what Paul's saying here. We suffer because we live in two worlds. There's tremendous tension there. You're engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and still have. He's saying this is the part of the deal. It's not. Here's the point. Suffering doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Suffering just means you belong to Jesus. But through the lens of the gospel, we, we see suffering differently. We don't see it, ever see it as pleasant. We don't ever just write it off, but we see that it's temporary. 1 Peter 5, it's a little while. It's a temporary suffering. We also see it through the lens of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 8. We do not lose heart. Though your outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to things that are seen but to things that are unseen. Do you hear that language about two worlds? For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see, we become so much more alive even as we're dying. Why? We have this question, why is this happening? The eternal why hanging over our heads. Why? Why me? Why Why couldn't things be different? And well-meaning people will give you answers to tell you that there's a reason. And one day we'll know everything. I don't know. I don't see in the Bible where we're going to know the reasons for everything. It doesn't say that. But it does say we have Jesus and we will have Jesus who is everything and the reason for everything. I think we can get stuck sometimes on the reasons for everything. It doesn't mean there's not legitimate questions, but I think that we can miss the real answer that has come. The gospel isn't some trick God has up his sleeve. It's God giving himself to us. God suffered to end suffering. That's the answer. I don't know why. And anyone tells you who that they do know why, I would run. But we do have Jesus, who calls himself the way. Do you hear that? The destination. The way. Think about it. The way. I just can't get over that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14, verse 6. You know what that means? It means if you have Jesus, you have the destination with you, and you're arriving at that destination. But that Jesus Christ has has brought something so cataclysmic to this world, so significant, so transformational in his death and his resurrection, and then sending us his spirit means that we are able to now live crying and laughing, um, singing songs of lament and songs of joy. That's what the world needs to see. Not an either or, but a both and. That's what it means to live in two worlds. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time just to reflect on this word, and I pray that it would, I pray that we would just, we would trust you. I pray that you would create in our hearts new life, that you convert some of us that, that have never seen this, and that you would warm our hearts John Wesley said that our, our hearts would be strangely warmed. 
by this good news, that we would find it to be the true thing, the last thing, the best thing. In Jesus' name, amen.